0: Welcome to Behavioral Science Uncovered, the podcast about behavioral science and how it is made. Hello, everyone. This is BS Uncovered. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Olivia, and today we'll be talking with Dr. Sally Sadoff from the University of California, San Diego, and Dr. Andy Brownback from the University of Arkansas. Hello, Sally and Andy. It's a pleasure to have you with us.
1: Hi, it's great to be here.
0: Yeah, thanks so much for having us. So today we'll be discussing your forthcoming paper, Improving College Instruction Through Incentives. For anyone who hasn't yet read the paper, could either of you briefly explain what it is about?
1: Great, thanks for asking. This, this paper broadly explores the role instructors play at influencing students' outcomes, and specifically, we're going to look at whether it's possible to incentivize an instructor using targeted bonuses in such a way that we can improve student outcomes. So to test this, we're going to use an experiment. We're going to randomly select a group of instructors to give bonuses based on objective, comprehensive student exams. And then we're going to see how these influence the subsequent student outcomes, both on those exams and in broader outcomes as well, such as course completion, credit accumulation, graduation and transfer rates, and so on. Now, our bonuses are a little unique They're framed as losses, and we do this in order to leverage loss aversion. This idea that we could have the same amount of money reflect a sort of uh, larger psychological incentive when it's framed in the loss domain. So to do this, we give instructors a bonus upfront. And then at the end of the semester, depending on student performance, if students have underperformed the goal, then some of that incentive will sort of be clawed back. Whereas if students outperform their goal, then we'll give actually additional incentives at the end of the semester.
0: Okay, great. And how did you come to work on this particular topic?
2: I've been working in education for a while. I actually started off as a high school and middle school teacher before going to graduate school. And then when I was in graduate school, I started working on running field experiments in schools and trying to test interventions to improve achievement in low performing schools. And I had worked previously on a topic on a similar paper where we give loss framed bonuses to elementary school teachers and found evidence that it could be effective. And so we were really interested in bringing this to the post secondary level, where when once we looked at it, we realized that there's really very little research on improving instructor quality at the college level. And so we thought this could be a really interesting context to test it, especially because when we took a step back, we realized that there's actually a fair amount of flexibility in contracts for instructors at the college level. Now with the rise of adjunct instructors who work under these flexible short-term contracts, you could imagine restructuring them in such a way that there's a performance component.
0: And how about you, Andy?
1: So this specific topic, I came to almost exclusively by way of Sally. So wrote notes on these questions. My note here just says Sally. Um, <laughs> so this was a project that definitely builds on Sally's existing work, and so really excited to to be able to take part in that. But. As far as my background goes, uh, I've always been working in education to a certain extent, but much more from sort of the behavioral side and experimental side. So I've done some lab studies and, and so on. So the field context and certainly working with an institution, this was all new to me. And so it definitely was something, a learning experience where I was able to kind of lean on Sally's expertise a lot.
0: Great. And following on from that, how do each of you feel your skills and expertise complemented one another effectively?
1: Yeah, I guess I can just kind of build on what I was just saying that, you know, Sally has a lot of experience and expertise in this field to being able to leverage that was invaluable to me. It is kind of funny how the division of labor tends to work across projects. But just to give you kind of an inside view on this project, the design was something that took a lot of institutional knowledge into consideration. And so we worked obviously together on building the partnership on understanding the context and how we could implement these incentives in this specific context. And then, you know, sort of once the project was set up, then you kind of divide and conquer and a lot of the logistics and certainly on the groundwork. Uh, maybe I did a disproportionate amount just because I was actually closer to the project and I had an accounting group or the accounting office at my college was more willing to work with me on on actually paying out these incentives. And then as the results came in, you know, Sally's great at forming the narrative and did a lot of presentations, got a lot of feedback, and and that was really invaluable as we both started working through the paper and, and writing up the results. So that was, I guess, kind of a, a bit of a rough breakdown, obviously. There's also a, a tiny bit of differentiation just from our experiences. I Maybe I'm slightly more behavioral person. Sally definitely has more experience in the education realm. So there's a little bit of a division of labor there too. But, you know, maybe Sally has a completely different view of this. <laughs> like, I don't know how you saw this breaking down. Um, I know
2: this is uncomfortable right you never actually have these conversations yeah the team right <laughs> i saw that question and i got a little bit nervous oh god what is andy gonna say <laughs> andy's being obviously true to andy as being very modest he really took the lead on this project once it got off the ground he the work that it takes to not only develop but sustain these partnerships and the detail that you have to be taking to keep sort of Con- the constant attention to detail and making sure that you're nurturing these partnerships and communicating effectively and taking care of any problems as they arise, communicating not just with the administration, but with individual teachers and the detail and it's not just sort of the work of implementation but always keeping an eye on what's needed for the experiment and balancing the needs on the ground with the needs of the experiment is a really delicate balance and Andy completely took the lead on that as well as the data analysis and I think yeah the writing is sort of where we came back together and worked on it together in the presentation and getting the feedback but Andy really I think was certainly the leader of the ship and I think what really came out is the importance of developing these relationships in such a way that we still can communicate with our partner and say, oh, we're we're running this analysis. We've been asked to look at this. Can you send us these data? And our partner is just incredible. They're incredibly dedicated, and they are still willing to sort of do work for us. And I think it's partly a testament to them and their dedication, but also a testament to the relationship that Andy built with them from the beginning. And
1: and just to not take an undue amount of credit (laughs) that as this was so this was my first experience outside of a more controlled environment so I mentioned kind of our maybe division of field slightly and so understanding the need for these types of relationships is something you don't really get until you are utterly dependent on them for the completion of a project that means so much to you and so that was something I wouldn't say that I fully appreciated uh, in the way Sally did when we were working on this project and developing that relationship. And so leveraging her experience in that was was super important just to kind of get a full grasp of what it means to have a partnership with An institution whose goals aren't 100% in line with yours, at some point, you have to make them care about this research project. And that was something that uh, Sally understands through her experience. And now through this, I I understand a little better. So that was really important to have someone with some experience and credibility in this domain on the project at that time.
2: And I would just, I would also add that another thing I learned from Andy on this project is the important, I think that what's nice about experiments is that usually the data analysis is fairly simple, but I think that we applied relatively new techniques in this project, for instance, in the way we did the power calculations using simulations, rather than sort of just going into Stata and doing the, typical the power demand in there to calculate your power and I think that really helped because we were in a complex environment of how we did the randomization and then at the back end we use randomization inference which is sort of this now new way of calculating p-values and so I really came to appreciate having data data skills, which are all Andes <laughs> in this and applying those to experiments because I think they can make them really more valuable and also bringing in some of these techniques from lab experiments and applying them in our field setting we'll come back to this but we coupled our larger RCT with a survey of the instructors about their preferences for these incentives which built on some lab experiment I had done previously as well and I think it really helped make the paper richer to not only understand what's the effect of these incentives but what are instructors preferences
0: for them and how do they evolve. It sounds like you both gained a lot of insight from working together which is great. Leading on from this So you partnered with the Community College Ivy Tech. Is there anything else that you want to add about how this partnership came about?
2: This is, I I know that it looks like from your questions, you want to give people advice on how to find partners and get these projects off the ground. Ours is probably not a great example because we just lucked into it. We, We wish we could take credit, but basically, what happened is an incredibly visionary leader at Ivy Tech, Ronald Sloan, emailed me and some of my prior co authors saying that he had read our paper on incentives for elementary school. Teachers because he sits around reading academic working papers for fun. And he was really excited about it and he wanted to try to test it at Ivy Tech. And the other stroke of good luck was that the week after he sent us this email, John List at the University of Chicago, who was my co-author on that paper and was the chair of the department at the time, was running the Summer Field Experiments Institute or the Summer Institute for Field Experiments or something along those lines. And it was institute that was pairing young academics with organizations that were interested in running field experiments. And Andy happened to be taking part in this institute and I happened to be speaking at it. And so we invited Ron up to participate it in it he uh, he was andy's partner and i i invited myself to join their partnership so it was just such a stroke of good luck and i cannot say enough about the dedication of everybody at ivy tech they are so incredibly dedicated to improving the outcomes of their students they did so much extra work to first of all navigate the bureaucracy of this really large institution to make this project possible And then just went above and beyond, giving so many extra hours to make this possible. And really just because they cared, there was really just because they cared about improving the outcomes of their students, there really wasn't anything personally in it for them. And I just came away just in such admiration of the people who work there and all that they did for the project and that they do for their
1: students. Yeah, absolutely. That's extremely well said. The one thing I might add is that it's not a great case study in how you find a partner, but it actually does illuminate some aspects of identifying whether a partner is going to be good or not, because it was immediately clear on talking with Ron about his vision for what doing a research study like this could bring to his school. Once we had a grip of his vision for that, it was very clear that he was gonna be a really good partner And so there are more opportunities to partner with people than there are opportunities to partner with good people. And this was definitely an opportunity to partner with someone who is perfectly understanding of the role of experimentation in measuring out good policy, very comfortable with taking an innovative approach and not being sort of dogmatically trained to what we've always done and someone who is just really unbelievably eager to learn in a way that definitely puts puts me to shame. And so all of those characteristics were things that you sit down with him for a minute or two and you understand that he would make a great partner. And so those things are aspects of trying to identify projects that are worth doing. It's not just, could this be, you know, how do I find the person in the first place? But how do, once you're sitting down in a conversation with them, How do you know that this is something that isn't going to get completely thrown off off the rails after you've invested a lot of time into it? And it was very clear he wasn't going to, to let something like that happen
2: but I should say we had a lot of conversations with him. We didn't start necessarily with this project. Andy and I had a lot of ideas that we thought about in conversation with him and not just Ron, but a much larger team. And a lot of our ideas they basically said, "Look, that's not feasible for this reason or that reason." And I think it's so important to listen to what they're saying in terms of what's important to them, what the, what outcomes they want to move, but also what as an institution, what kind of programs are they able to support. We had a lot of sort of grandiose ideas about programs that would have to be sort of developed from the ground up also ideas that Andy mentioned before understanding the institutional details Andy and I would suggest programs and they say oh but you don't understand how that interacts with financial aid and so a lot of the crafting of the design came from feedback from the organization about what works in their context and so, so I think it's really important to have those conversations and I think it ends up getting a lot of buy-in from the partner because they they really see that you're listening and you're taking their feedback seriously and you're prop- posing things that
0: they can buy into. Interesting. That's really useful insight. Could you talk a bit more about what results you found regarding the incentives impact on both students' educational outcomes and on the instructors' preferences for the deferring contracts?
1: So we find really large effects on the incentivized test scores, and so maybe this isn't exactly the most surprising uh, of our findings, but it's about a 0.2 standard deviation increase in the test scores. Remember these are objective, they're comprehensive exams, so we think there's probably, there is as little room as we could make it possible to sort of manipulate these scores or sort of teach to these tests without just teaching the material that the course is supposed to cover. But in addition to those, if you're maybe skeptical about the incentivized test scores rising, then we have a lot of other outcomes that are really positive as well. The course grades rise by a significant amount, and that's even once we've netted out the test scores and their impact on the course. The course completion rate improves by about three percentage points, which is actually a really large effect size there. We see additional credit accumulation, and we see students that are in incentivized courses are more likely to transfer to four-year colleges. So all of these are these bigger picture of longer run outcomes that are all improved by these instructor incentives. And one super impressive result that, that you certainly couldn't game is that we see the spillover effects on, program, on courses that are outside of the program. So courses that were neither control nor treatment courses, they were completely outside of the program. We see that students who experienced incentivized courses are more likely to complete those courses. And this sort of suggests that our incentives are working at a pretty broad level within the student to maybe keep them in school for the whole semester or keep them motivated for the whole semester. With respect to the instructor's preferences, we actually see that at baseline instructors, they don't really like our loss-framed incentives, or at least they start off with some skepticism towards them. But after experiencing the incentives, Uh, Their preferences towards them grow significantly. And any instructor who has spent at least a semester under these incentives is, uh, is roughly indifferent between these loss framed incentives and an alternative policy where we just did like a gain frame, a more standard gain framed incentive. So we think of that as, as evidence towards its viability as a policy, because one of the criticisms would be, well, if uh, losses are so painful, then instructors would hate these incentives. Uh, and we find that that might that might be true at baseline, but it's certainly not
0: true after experience with the incentives. Interesting. Sally, do you have anything to add?
2: I think, yeah, no, I just say that two things that I think are really interesting about the community college context are one that we saw that this margin of completing the course is really important in the community college context. About a quarter of students start the course go past the withdrawal, they've spent their money on the course, they can't get it back, if they don't complete the course, it counts as a failure, which goes against their record for things like financial aid, and it goes on their transcript, and they just don't complete the course. And so increasing completion rates, I think, is a really important and perhaps underrecognized outcome at this level of how important it is to get students through the course. And as Andy mentioned, it looks like if you can encourage them to complete the course they're taking with the incentivized instructor, it seems to also keep them in their other courses. And so that's, I think, part of the mechanism for why we have these large effects. And then really impressively, a year later, we're still seeing impacts on student outcomes. This transfer to four-year colleges is a key outcome for community college students. About 80% of students who start at community colleges say they intend to transfer to a four-year school, but only about a quarter end up doing so. And so we think that's another really important outcome to focus on for community colleges. We We didn't really talk that much about community colleges. We we learned through this project how important community colleges are about, they serve about, I think is at 40% now of all undergrads and about Half of those who eventually earn a B.A. start at community colleges, but they really struggle with time to degree and these problems with dropout and so on. And so they're serving a really important population. They've expanded access to students who might not traditionally go to college because they're in local communities. They're serving people who may need to work while they go to school or have children or, um, you know, are older than the traditional student and so on. And they serve a really wide range of people trying to earn a really wide range of degrees. And so there's a lot of research in education, but relatively community colleges have received less attention. And so we think just understanding this environment, trying to improve outcomes in this environment is really important. And I think that as well, I think the results about these instructor preferences is really important because again, community college instructors, especially our community college instructors in our environment get paid very little, and so can understand if there's a way to increase their pay in a way that increases quality, I think that can really help um, community colleges.
0: Sure. Your current working paper titled College Summer School, Educational Benefits and Enrollment Preferences also looks at preferences, but focuses on college students' preferences for taking summer classes. Would you say that the results from the previous paper acted as a sort of segue for the type of research you conducted in this current paper?
1: So the uh, summer school paper actually was conducted in parallel. They, They were happening simultaneously with the instructor incentives paper. So they were always kind of viewed as two parts of the same agenda on understanding preferences that motivate decisions in an educational context. We knew from the outset, just talking to our partners, that a lot of the constraints in many different policy environments was going to be dependent on preferences, whether that was the preferences of the instructors or the students. And so getting a better grip of the preferences that are underlying these environments actually was always a priority. And that's why both of these have that sort of common theme to them. So one doesn't necessarily follow from the other. They were actually very much conducted, seen as two parts of a a whole project there.
2: I would say though, the part of the idea did come from our partners. So Ron Sloan, who we've mentioned, is sort of obsessed with summer school. You know, he really thinks summer school is so important and he struggles because students do not enroll in summer school. And again, this is another area where when Andy and I step back and looked at it, there's really almost no work on college summer school. And it's really fascinating because when you think about it, there's no reason for college students necessarily to not go to school in the summer. It's not like a K-12 where school ends in the summer. If you go to school in the summer, you earn credits towards your degree the same way as during the year. And so it's sort of an interesting context to understand why are so few students going to school in the summer. Ron Sloan is really interested in it because he thinks it can help students progress and address this problem that so few students are earning degrees and earning degrees on time. And also from an institutional side, they have classrooms sitting empty in the summer, they have excess capacity, and so they would like to be able to fill those classrooms in the summer. So it's a really interesting topic that from a behavioral perspective, as Andy mentioned, understanding these preferences, why why don't people want to go to school in the summer? And also from the context side, we were also hearing that it's an area where They really wanted to understand better how do we get students to go to school in the summer and will that
0: have an impact on their progress interesting and both of these projects use natural field experiments to each test a particular type of incentive scheme Can you briefly discuss what sort of precautions and ethical considerations had to be taken into account in the program's designs and executions? And how did the fact that you'd worked with Ivy Tech for the first experiment help shape the experimental design of the second one, even though they were parallel? Did that have any impact?
1: Experimentation is a tricky ethical topic and this is something you could imagine you know we're seeing this play out in real time with like covid vaccines right that understanding the the truth of the vaccine is an important part of testing the vaccine so For most people, they're pretty uncomfortable thinking about policies in the same framework as they might think about drug trials. So you really do have to put people into that mindset where you're thinking about, okay, your personnel policy or or your policy towards instructor pay is like a drug you're bringing to market. And you need to understand the impact of that policy in order to sort of best uh, or, or pursue best practices. So that's always a tough conversation to have. As we've mentioned, we had great partners to walk alongside and to really be our advocate from an institutional perspective. But there were a couple things that we had to do to make sure that the setting was very much sort of above board ethically. So one thing that we did from the outset is that all of our incentives are bonuses that would be given in addition to standard pay for these instructors. And this is, of course, Really important, if we're testing out these bonuses and we don't know the impact yet, there's kind of a do no harm policy. And we, we didn't want to make it such that we could diminish someone's pay if it turned out that they were assigned to a certain treatment group or, or control group so that was part of it another thing is that we had to clear everything through their legal counsel and this actually led to one of the more frightening aspects of the experiment where we did kind of have an emergency meeting with their legal counsel to convince them that we had thought through the considerations of exactly what negative implications could there be disappointment or sort of anger at the process and specifically how well we communicated that these are bonuses and these are being tested out as a policy because of the fact that we believe these will be effective at promoting student outcomes so all of those were part of our ethical calculations that went into the design of the project i think i'll save the second part of the question about how this shaped the experimental design after sally corrects anything i said wrong (laughs) there
2: No, I'll just say that a natural field experiment I may mean, I don't know exactly how you're using that term, it may mean that people don't know they're in an experiment. In our experiments, people knew. They signed consent forms that had gone through IRB approval. I think it's very difficult to run experiments of this kind without people knowing they're in an experiment. And, you know, when you start rolling out these kinds of unusual bonuses, people know something's happening anyway. So I think that that's one thing to think about, you know, might not be the ideal. You know, ideally, maybe you don't want people to know they're in an experiment, but I think in these contexts, it's generally required. One thing I think we do that's really important advice that I would give to anybody thinking about doing these kinds of things. A really important way to build up trust that I've learned from doing several of these is to run a small scale pilot before you enter the large scale RCT. And the reason this is so helpful is first, it it helps iron out logistics. It helps the institution kind of figure out what they need to do to be able to communicate and recruit and collect data. But the other thing it does is it helps you start out with the most enthusiastic instructors. Those are the ones that generally sign up for the pilot. And the goal of the pilot is not necessarily to get any sort of sense of your treatment effects. I think the goal of the pilot largely should be to provide a positive experience for the people who participate in it. Because if they go through it and they have a positive experience, both the instructors and the administration, then they can turn around to the more skeptical instructors and say, look, I did this and they didn't bother me. I was able to teach. I got a little extra money and it's a good thing. You should sign up too. And so then they turn into our best advocates. So I really advise running pilot studies in these contexts where there might be some discomfort with what you're trying to do because some people are gonna get it and some people aren't. And these bonuses feel a little scary, this idea that you might have to write a check back to us and so on. And again, just the idea of researchers coming in and exam. You can feel scary. And so I think it's the best way to iron out those concerns, because in these meetings with HR and the lawyers, there are a lot of concerns that are raised. And the best way to address them is really to say, well, you know, we went through it and, you know, these things didn't arise, they may arise in the future, but it went pretty smoothly when we ran it as a pilot. And I think that can be the best way to allay some of these ethical concerns. And then again, building up that partnership helped us with the summer program, because once the institution understands how these things work, when you roll out the next one, they they understand, okay, right, we need to get these consent forms, and we need to make sure that the people in your summer experiment aren't in your other experiment. And so they sort of (laughs) internalize the process, which is really helpful. And they were, again, very helpful at identifying what kinds of students we should target for these summer scholarships, and so on. And Another thing that Ivy Tech was really helpful in is not just sort of sending out an email about this program and leaving it at that, but really having conversations with their instructors and reaching out proactively to participants to explain what was going on and to communicate it and make sure that, again, communication was very clear. Andy went there in person, held meetings with the teachers, answered concerns that they had about the experiment. And so in these cases, when you're running this kind of unusual program, I think it is very important to sort of, there are some trade-offs with not maybe making it more natural, but I do think it's important to really clearly communicate with the participants and address any concerns they have as they come up.
0: Yes, definitely. Do you feel that these sort of precautions and ethical considerations were the most challenging aspects of both projects, or was there anything else that you found more challenging?
2: Yeah, what was the most challenging? That's an interesting question. So one thing that we didn't bring up earlier, and again, for people who are thinking about running these experiments, first of all, when you're running experiments, it's just impossible to anticipate what's going to go wrong. There's constant problems cropping up, and you just have to be sort of ready to address them. And Andy can speak maybe more specifically to what he felt were the most challenging things that came up. But To me, one of the most challenging things that came up that we could never have anticipated is that Ron Sloan, who we've mentioned several times, about halfway through our project, he left Ivy Tech. And Andy and I just... You know, to me, I was really nervous when that happened, because when your champion at the organization leaves, it's very worrisome, right, about what's going to happen to your project. And I think, again, it's a testament to Ivy Tech and the other people we were working with there that the project continued and did go forward. But just to say that something like that can happen in the middle of your project, and not that you should be able to anticipate that kind of thing, but hopefully you've built up enough sort of structure around your project that it is able to continue forward smoothly because our project did require sort of constant ongoing support and it's just something to keep in mind. Andy, I don't know what you, what are you, what are you still traumatized by from the project?
1: Yeah, certainly losing our advocate at a time when we were most dependent on the institutional side of everything, because that was when we would need data to be updated and we would need a lot of very much institutional help. And that was, that was concerning. I think a big challenge with anything like this is that just communication with so many different parties is, is hard to maintain. Because we're dealing with professionals, right? These, this is their career. They've dedicated their lives to being very good at it. And so being able to communicate exactly why we think it's important to, run exper- to, to do experimentation in this domain, to test out different policies that they may or may not think are good ideas, and they may or may not think they have better ideas to test out. Those are all really tricky. Uh, And especially when you have your subjects as such experts, uh, that was uh, a challenge. And so we had to maintain open communication with all of the instructors as well as all the administrators and even people at the central uh, office to an extent of exactly what we were doing and sort of the motivation behind it while still maintaining that scientific degree of integrity of just tell your subjects your hypotheses at the outset that that's certainly not a good practice. So there was kind of a balance there, and I think that was really challenging, much more so than when I work in the lab with undergrads, who I don't really have to explain, you know, why they're in the lab or, or what what's the logic behind the whole
0: arrangement. And besides what we might have already discussed, is there anything you would have done differently in either of the projects?
2: I don't think this is something I would have done differently, but I think one regret I have about, oh, I don't know if it's a regret, but something I wish had gone differently with the first project is that even though we got these really impressive results, they didn't really trickle up to the institution. So it's not that now, oh, the institution, you know, Ivy Tech saw these results. What we, the first, the original vision for the project was that we would start at a few campuses that Ron Sloan sort of in charge of. And that if we demonstrated success, it could expand across the campuses because Ivy Tech um, is the community college for all of the state of Indiana. It has about 170,000 students. And so it was really exciting to think that we could test this on a small level. And if it was successful, it would roll out. And that part never really happened. We presented the results to Central Campus, but they were sort of in a transitional period and didn't have anybody that could sort of make a decision on it. And so I do think, and maybe partly because Ron left, the results kind of died on the vine, at least at Ivy Tech. You know, we are now working with another college that's interested. And so maybe, you know, through these results being seen by other academics and other institutions, hopefully it'll have impact that way. But I don't have an answer for this what we could have done differently to have them have more of an impact within the institution. But that's one thing that I wished for that project. Andy, did you have other, other regrets?
1: That was exactly what I was thinking as well. And As I've reflected back on it, I wish maybe as the project had momentum, we had established or set a time for when we would come back and present the results, at least so that we would know that there was someone at Ivy Tech who was going to spend a little bit of time seeing what happened and what worked and what didn't. And that's something I've thought about as far as um, integrating it into future studies. It's just actually scheduling that time. To reflect on the results and make suggestions going forward. Because that it's so hard to get anyone's ear as far as making policy recommendations based on academic research. That while you have an active partnership that has momentum, I think that would be a good time to take advantage of of the open communication you have, just to say, I'd like to keep this going. We're we're going to you know have preliminary results by this date and we'd love to come back out here and make a 10 minute, a 20 minute, 30 minute presentation about what our results are and, and what the policies could be going forward. And that, as Sally said, was just it was a, a non-starter for us given the status of our, you know, our our relationship with Ivy Tech at the end. So it, that was a bit disappointing, I'd say.
0: Sure, that's that's understandable. And we discussed this quite in depth, actually, a bit earlier on, but you've both worked with many different partners on field experiments, particularly in areas such as health and education. Do you have any advice on how to find and select such local partners?
1: I think, yeah, finding someone with a, with a passion and a, a curiosity who's In a position to make consequential decisions about policy, those are really people that you want to make friends with for sure. And whether it's someone that uh, is at a big corporation that touches a lot of personnel policy or someone at an educational institution or in the government. Anyone who has that curiosity and that excitement uh, about learning, that's certainly the characteristic I've appreciated the most about our partners at Ivy Tech and about partners in general. Those are people who are willing to be flexible. They're willing to brainstorm with you for solutions as opposed to just telling you, no, this isn't possible. Because your first ideas, your second ideas, those will always be impossible. As we learned, and, and as Sally mentioned, it, we went through many iterations of ideas for personnel policy that were, were actually just impossible given the institutional context that we didn't understand. So if you have a bad partner, they just stop you there and, and it kind of dies out. But a good partner says, that's not possible, but but this is. and And that's certainly something I look for as I'm talking with people about potential projects and just having making sure that the person who's making commitments to you has the ability to follow through with them that's also I think really important because we found a partner that was not only curious, not only excited about these types of research questions, but he was the one making decisions as well. And I think that's that's also important. So as far up the food chain as you can go is is certainly a luxury that we had.
2: Yeah, I totally agree with that. I think keep saying a partner institution, you're really working with one or several people and you need, those people are gonna have to do a lot of extra work to make the project happen. So you wanna make sure that the people who you're actually working with are really dedicated to the project and seem to have sort of person. Often they just have a personal passion for it. And that's what drives them to continue working with you, even when they realize, wow, this is a lot more work than I thought it would be. I think one way to sort of screen whether, because I'm sure, I mean, I assume Andy has this as well, that you talk to a lot more and I think he said this before, you talk to a lot more people as potential partners than you ever end up running experiments with. And One way to understand early on, I think, whether you're going to really be able to move forward with a partner is to try and do something like, oh, ask for data. See if they can give you data and see what happens with a request like that. Because sometimes just seeing whether they can and will and are able to produce the kinds of things you're going to need for the project is a good sort of screening device to see whether this project has any hope of moving forward. And so what I would suggest to people who are feeling out a partnership, I wouldn't do it on day one. But once there seems to be some enthusiasm there, you've generated some initial ideas, maybe say, oh, well, can I take a look at your data to either sort of, we we often do it to say, oh, we need to run power calculations for our experimental proposal that we're submitting to funders. And if they're able to give us data, to me that's a good sign that okay, they're responsive, they have the data, we can see what these data look like. You know, there might be other ways to screen like running small pilot studies, but again, before you dive into a really large study, I would say try to test the waters with some smaller asks to see how responsive and capable they are of giving you these things, and that can be a good way to see whether the big project will have any hope of going forward.
0: Great. That's really useful advice. How does a standard day of work look like for you? For example, when you're writing up a paper versus when you're running an experiment in the field?
2: thing I tell graduate students, right, who are thinking about running field experiments is that you spend all this time getting a PhD and you're in these really intensive theoretical and mathematical classes. You're thinking at a very high level. And when you start running field experiments, I think you can start asking yourself, did I really need a PhD to, you know, do some of these things, right? Because a lot of it is answering emails, a lot of it is project management, a lot of it is down in the weeds, right? And just being really responsive. And a lot of, I'm sure Andy has more text messages and emails (laughs) and phone calls from me, you know, than he could have ever imagined. It's a lot of this detail work that I think we're not trained for really, actually, in graduate school, right? How to respond to the instructor who emails you three weeks and to the project and says, you know, they lost their check or whatever it is, you know, some kind of minor detail. And so a lot of it is that, especially when you're in the middle of running the experiment. And so I think, I think that that's not something we really receive training on formally. It's maybe something that the only way to really get the training on it is to work on a field experiment and just see all of the grunt work that's involved. That would be sort of my big piece that I try to tell people because I think, again, it's really hard to get a sense of what it's like to work in field experiments until you're in them.
1: Yeah, absolutely. The degree of detail that you need to maintain is uh, really challenging. And uh, the other aspect of that is, you know, if you're doing an applied paper or something, there's obviously tons of details that you have to maintain as well. But if you're in the middle of running an experiment, not maintaining those details can really undermine the entire premise of the experiment. It can, it can diminish your treatment effects because either your subjects lose faith in the experiment or maybe it was delayed or, or something like that. So there is a sense in which the timeliness of, of maintaining an attention to detail, maintaining communication with subjects, things like that actually influence the quality of the product you're going to put out and the results that you'll draw. Whereas in other, other settings, maybe it's not as urgent. I, I think as far as what is kind of day-to-day look like, that totally depends on where you are in a project. When we were really in the midst of of rolling out the project day-to-day might look like a monday morning flight to indiana it might look like setting up a day or two of meetings with instructors or calls with partners those types of things are absolutely part of it but even early on you know a lot of it might just be returning uh, me being in my office returning emails to instructors who had questions about the procedures or to administrators at Ivy Tech who were trying to answer questions about when checks would come in or how much they would be or how we would roll this all out, those types of things. That obviously transitions into begging people for data, you know, the data to come in on time and running the analysis. When we were doing the final analysis, it's a whole bunch of data with some relatively high level analysis. And so that can take a while and coding up the the analysis as well as merging tons of different data sets. You know, that can be pretty exhausting work. And then once it gets to writing, honestly, it's just a real relief, right? And and writing, is, it can be, I, I certainly enjoy it. I think that's the most fun part for me. And so you sit down and you just try to explain, you tell the story of your your project and the results that it uh, achieved and, and what the implications for that are. And uh, yeah, I think that's a, a lot of fun and, and much easier to, to maintain focus throughout than it is to maintain the focus for the 60th email you've sent to someone asking some obscure detail about the project.
2: Yeah, I think the thing that you don't see in these papers once they're written up is all the messiness along the way. And that's just something you have to live with in field experiments, but it's also something you need to keep track of because as Andy said, that detail about, oh, that instructor who did that, okay. We need to think about that for the analysis, right? So keeping track of these things and having it run through the the analysis, which might be years later, right, by the time that you're done with the project and you're running sort of the long-term outcomes and that kind of thing. And we really cannot emphasize enough the importance of being responsive to instructors, to administrators, and being responsive in a way that, again, maintains the integrity of the project, but also respects the constraints of the organization and the concerns they have that finding that balance, I think, is really important. And then I think the same thing, you know, with your co-authors. I could never, I can't imagine having done this. Well, obviously, I couldn't have done it with Andy, because you can see how much what he did for the project and how, what the leadership, but also in terms of the writing, even sort of going back and forth. And one thing that I know Andy does with some of his co-authors is how, you know, they actually even meet in person and sort of sit down for a few days and hammer it out. Andy and I have done that over the phone when we're finishing up drafts. And I think really going through it together is so helpful. The the writing improves, the clarity of it improves so much by really sitting down and working on it together and going back and forth and iterating a lot.
0: Definitely. Interesting. And lastly, what single piece of advice would each of you give to early career researchers trying to write a publishable paper? Sally, do you want to go ahead?
2: I. this is hard. You know, I really struggle with this because field experiments are so risky. Andy said it was fun to write up the paper, but that was partly because After all this hard work, we had really impressive results. I mean, I I can't emphasize enough. I've run a lot of experiments in education. None of them have turned out like this, right? This is probably the experiment I've run with just the cleanest, clearest, most exciting results. Often you get sort of very, you know, you get results that don't necessarily paint a clear picture or you run something and it didn't really work, but it's noisy and it's a real struggle to write it up, especially after you spend so much time implementing it. And so, you know, in that way, this is sort of, you know, I don't want, you know, we're talking about, you see the successes more than the failures. And I know our profession is working on that to sort of try to address this file drawer problem and so on. But part of the reason there's a file drawer problem is it's not very much fun to write up a paper where the results don't really tell a clear picture, right? You do it for the sake of sharing that information. But I think that's hard. And it's hard for early career people, especially in these experiments that take a long time. You know, you might spend a year running this project. and unfortunately. If the results aren't exciting, they aren't statistically significant, our profession still has a bias against publishing those results. And so I do have trouble advising early career researchers to sort of put all their eggs in the basket of field experiments. So I think diversification is really important, right? Not too much because you see how much work it is to run these projects successfully, but um, I do think it is important to sort of make sure that maybe you're also running other kinds of lower risk. Projects. Another thing I would say, in terms on the paper side, is to really take the writing of the paper seriously. A well written paper, one that is clearly written, that la- makes it easy for the reader to understand what happened and what the results were. This telling, this crafting of the story that Andy's mm-hmm. talking about, but being honest about it, right? Not making readers feel like you're you know, trying to pull the wool over their eyes is so important. I, I may, maybe I'm sensitive to this because I've got a pile of referee reports that I need to get to, but, you know, I really think it helps to really take the writing seriously, have other people read it, you know, don't be scared to share your draft with people and ask them for feedback. They might only get through the introduction, but that's what most readers only get through anyway. Just ask them, you know, is it clear what we're arguing? Andy and I sent our first draft out to a couple people and they said, you know, this is awful. I have no idea what you're saying and what you're trying to argue here. And that was really helpful advice. So really do put yourself out there, the writing of the paper, I'm trying to now push for shorter papers. And that's what we're doing in our summer paper, we're trying to make it short with about five total figures and tables. And that's a a much better way to get people, we got a lot more people to read that paper, because they saw that it was only, you know, 11 pages long, and it was something they could see in a couple figures, they could get our message. And so so I think that's also, I think, again, an, another skill that I think we don't really get trained on in graduate school, but is really important is to really write clear and make your papers as short as possible. The first, our teacher, our instructor paper is not short, but I think that that's justified because it has a lot of elements. But again, just making it as easy as possible for readers to get through these papers. And like I said, share it a lot so that you can get sometimes that painful early feedback that you need to make changes.
1: Yeah, I was actually just taking notes <laughs> so, so I could get all of Sally's advice down. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's kind of funny to give advice myself, but I would say a couple things that I learned, and, and this is really just reiterating stuff Sally talked about. The first is uh, to be opportunistic. If it looks like it's going to work, uh, if you get the opportunity to work on a study that has a lot of potential, even if you're you know pretty bogged down at the moment, really think about, is this is a sort of a unique opportunity? should I should I take advantage of this? And that goes for, say like a, a grant opportunity too. If you've got something that fits really well, try to be opportunistic about that. But that also means dropping projects that aren't going to work you know, at some point you'll pick up a project and it will appear that there's there's something sort of fatal to the project going on and and once it becomes clear that it it's not going to move forward you really do need to be jealous about your time and and guard that in, in that way so two sides of the opportunistic coin there As far as designing the study, one thing I always tell my students is that write out the code you're going to run with the data before you start the experiment. So plan on from the analysis, move back to how you're going to run the intervention. And this is really important because a lot of people uh, have the ability to, say, randomize a certain aspect of an environment, but it's not just the ability to randomize that gets you identification of every aspect of the environment. So. Make sure that you know what is the key outcome and what you are going to be most focused on and make sure that your randomization is identifying that aspect, not just that it is randomizing some aspect of the environment. And that's something we took really seriously. We had a pre-analysis plan that had every main regression written out in detail. And there are pluses and minuses with actual pre-registration. Obviously, I'm not the most qualified person to talk about that. There's been lots of debate, open debate in different journals on that. But the main advantage as a researcher to doing this is it forces you to formalize the way you're thinking about the project. So taking that time to sit down and write out the regression equation helped us figure out how we were going to randomize the treatments. And then finally, with the writing, Yeah, take more time than you think you need to take. So all of Sally's advice is excellent advice and you should follow all of that and then follow it again, basically. So you need one more revision than you think you need usually, although I think you need one less revision than Sally thinks you need usually. (laughs) Uh, There's always a tension. So find a co-author who likes to revise papers more than you and they will push you into revising papers more than you want to. And that's always, almost always for the better.
2: Right, and then find a co-author that wants to revise things one less time than you, so you actually get the paper submitted, right? There's always, there's always you know, Andy's like, we're submitting it this week, right? So, you know, it's, it's exactly right. You want to find a co-author or co-authors that have complementary skills, and I think Andy and I may be lucked into that in this case, but I think you see that, I I think that really helps. And I think Andy's advice about being opportunistic is so important. Applying to every grant out there, you'll generally get rejected. But once you've written, you know, the, the grant application, adapting it for that next submission is fairly easy. Same thing with conferences, right? Submit your paper to every possible conference. Again, it will largely get rejected, but getting it out there and having people know about the paper, most of what we write, people are not reading. And so it's really important to give it um, exposure, especially with these field experiments that have a very long life, right? And so there can be a long period from the time that you're running the experiment to the time you submit it. You want people to know about it and get feedback on it along the way and have them have heard of it so that if it comes across their path, you know, it they know about it. So I think and again, anytime you get any sort of sense of an organization that might be interested in partnering, follow up on it and be responsive. Again, they won't all pan out and you do want to cut your losses at a point where you realize it's not going to go forward. But it's so rare to have these opportunities to partner with these institutions that I think Andy's, if there's one takeaway, I think it should be Andy's of just really proactively seizing every opportunity, always saying yes, and then deciding maybe down the road that no, it's not going to work out, but at least exploring every opportunity you can. That's some
0: super valuable advice from the both of you. Thanks for that. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. It's been highly insightful.
1: Yeah, thank you. This has been a great conversation. I, I certainly appreciate the chance to chat about research anytime that someone lets me.
2: Yeah, we really appreciate you doing this and sharing with young researchers, because I think so much of this is the kind of thing, again, that doesn't make it into our courses and doesn't make it into the papers. And so I think sort of being able to share these conversations is it's really valuable. So thank you guys for doing this.